Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Christian Faith Radio Hour. In fact, our first podcast of 2024. This is David Canfield, and I'm recording this here in Chicago on Wednesday, January 3rd, 2024. And it's certainly hard to believe that another year has gone by. My goodness, they go by so fast. But we trust the Lord for all that did take place in 2023, and we look to him once again for all that 2024 will bring in trust he will work out a real blessing on this year for the sake of his church, for the sake of his purpose, for his glory. Amen, Lord. Have your way in 2024. Lead us on in your way. Guide us and cause us to turn to you in a deeper way. We just commit ourselves to you. We just give this coming year to you for your sake and your glory. Shame the enemy. May your name be uplifted this year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in this podcast, we finally come to the matter of the Passover. And I shared, uh, actually I started to share in August to give some context for the Passover. And again, I did a a program the previous episode. I was reviewing what we'd already shared because that was so long ago. But in this program, we actually come to the Passover itself. And in the Passover, we have the fullest picture of the redemptive work of Christ that we see in the whole Bible. Of course, the New Testament speaks of the redemptive work of Christ, in plain words. It gives us the the direct teaching about the redemptive work of Christ. You see that in Romans chapter 3 and in a number of other New Testament passages. But with the picture of the Passover, we have a much, much fuller understanding of redemption than we would have if we only had the plain words of the New Testament. And that's why it's so important for us to have a very solid grounding in understanding the Passover if we want to have a real and complete understanding of the redemptive work of Christ. And the New Testament leaves no no question that the Passover is a type of the redemptive work of Christ. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus walking by, he just declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, one thing I really like about that that verse, that's John one twenty nine. The next day, he sees Jesus coming to him again. And this time, he only says, Behold the Lamb of God. He doesn't repeat who takes away the sin of the world. You know why that is? It's because the sin of the world only needs to be taken away one time. So John only had to say that once. It shows us the redemptive work of Christ is complete in and of itself. It's a one-time, once-for-all redemption. That's just a little aside, but I really love how, how specific the Bible is sometimes in these little details when it refers to the redemptive work of Christ. And when John there is talking about the Lamb of God. He's referring to Christ as the Passover Lamb, for sure. In Luke 22, verse 7, the night Jesus was betrayed, it says, Now came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover had to be sacrificed. So Jesus was sacrificed on the very day of the Passover to fulfill the Old Testament type of the Passover. And in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, the Apostle Paul gives us a very direct word. He says, Our Passover, Christ, has been sacrificed. So there you have a direct statement. Christ is our Passover lamb. And actually what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he does not even say Christ is our Passover lamb. He just says Christ our Passover. Some translations add the word there. They're not quite so faithful. They add the word Passover lamb to what Paul said. But Paul didn't say that. He says Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Now for sure, You can say Christ is our Passover lamb. But Paul's meaning in 1 Corinthians 5-7 is that Christ is not only our Passover lamb, 
every aspect of the Passover, not just the lamb itself, every aspect of the Passover shows us something of Christ and shows us something of his redemptive work. So the whole Passover is a picture of the redemptive work of Christ, and uh, as we see very clearly and very definitely in the New Testament. And so, yes, I would say again, to really understand redemption and what Christ accomplished on the cross and how that gets applied to us, we really need to look at this picture of the Passover in the Old Testament and how that delivered the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, something else the New Testament also makes very clear is that in reality, Satan has already been defeated. That's fully been accomplished by the death of Christ on the cross. John 12, 31, Jesus says, the ruler of this world is cast out. He's talking about he's going to destroy the ruler of this world on the cross. And Hebrews 2, 14 says that through death, Christ destroyed him who has the might of death. That is the devil. So as an objective reality, Satan has already been destroyed and defeated as the ruler of this world. But that doesn't need to be just an objective reality. It also has to become real in our experience. And that means that we as the believers in Christ practically need to come out of living under the authority of Satan as the ruler of this world, have a transfer from his authority to the authority of God, to the kingdom of Christ, so that Christ can have his dwelling place on the earth. And that's what the whole picture of the book of Exodus shows us, and that's what I was sharing in the, in the previous program, to give a context for the Passover, for understanding the Passover, to put it in the New Testament terms, to understand what redemption is really meant to accomplish. In the Old Testament picture, you had the plagues that came on the land of Egypt to subdue Pharaoh, then you had the Passover, then you had the Exodus, then you had the crossing of the Red Sea. These all depict stages, practically speaking, that we go through as the believers of Christ today to be rescued from the authority of Satan, to have that transfer into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. That really needs to be worked out in our experience so God can have his kingdom on the earth. And that's what this marvelous picture shows us in Exodus. Again, you have a teaching along these lines in the New Testament, but the Old Testament picture gives us so much more of an understanding, a so much richer and deeper understanding of the work the Lord is doing in our lives. Now, this matter of being delivered from Satan's bondage, uh, that's what I was sharing about in the last program and in the, the programs from August. I'll link to those in the program notes below. But right now, in this program, what we really want to focus on is the Passover itself, to see all it shows us about the redemptive work of Christ. And to do that, basically, I'm just going to go through the first 13 chapters of Exodus chapter 12. That's the, the chapter that really talks about the Passover. Just go through those verse by verse and consider what they say. And if time allows in the podcast, we'll go on and consider some additional points as well. But if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it. Uh, to Exodus chapter 12, and just read along with me. I'm reading from the New King James, but it'll be basically the same in whatever translation you're reading. Exodus 12:1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. It's really significant that it says here, God spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. Because it's pointing out, you're in the land of Egypt right now. But the Passover is going to get you out of the land of Egypt. 
I'm speaking to you about the Passover because I want you to have a deliverance from the land of Egypt. That's what's going to happen tonight when you partake of the Passover. The whole point of the Passover, in one sense, is to get you out of the land of Egypt. In verse 2, very, very crucial statement. This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. I just love that statement, saints, when you consider that in light of our spiritual experience. You know, whenever a person believes in the Lord, when they get saved, they should have a deep sense, I have just had a new beginning. I have a new start in my life now. Praise the Lord. This is the first month of the year to me. It's the first month. It's it's a new beginning for my life today because I believed in Christ. Every believer in Christ has a secular calendar and a sacred calendar. And I can, I can just tell you, in my experience, according to my secular calendar, I'm 65 years old, but I was saved. So I was born in 1958. I was saved in 1983. I was 25 years old. So spiritually speaking, according to my spiritual calendar, I'm 40 years old, if you just consider it in chronological terms. Now, I may have, sadly, I'm sure I have lost some of that time. But chronologically, in terms of my spiritual calendar, I'm 40 years old. When I got saved on March 20th, 1983, I had a new beginning. I just had a sense, my life has a new beginning now. Now I have a purpose. Now my life has a meaning and a goal. You know, in terms of a secular calendar, a lot of people, they feel my goal is this, my life is this, this is what my purpose is for. But deep down, they sense, I just don't know what my life is really all about. I don't know what I'm here for. But once you experience Christ as your Passover, Once you have the new birth in Christ, suddenly you have a realization. Now I know what my life is all about. Now I've begun a journey with Christ to go from Egypt, so to speak, the Egypt of this world, to go into the good land of knowing Christ, of standing with Christ for his desire so he can build up his dwelling place on the earth. Now I have a real purpose because I don't only have a secular calendar now, I have a sacred calendar. This is the beginning of months for me. Praise the Lord for that, saints. You can have a new beginning. If you feel your life has no purpose, if you feel your life has no meaning, I encourage you, open your heart to the Lord now and tell him, Lord, I want you to be my Savior. I want to have a new beginning. I want to have a real purpose in my life of pursuing you and gaining you for your kingdom on the earth. Amen, Lord. Have your way. Just a wonder, wonderful statement there in Exodus chapter 12, verse 2. This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him take and his neighbor next to his house, take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need shall you make your count for the lamb. So the lamb here is taken for the household. And I won't say too much about this, but it's significant that it says household here because we should pray based upon this for our entire household. When we're saved, when we turn to the Lord, we should take a stand with the Lord before him and pray before him for our entire household to turn to him as well. That's so important. Salvation is an individual matter, that's for sure. No one can be saved for you. You can't be saved for anyone else. But we should recognize that very often in the Bible, the unit of salvation is the household. It's so healthy and so good when an entire household turns to the Lord, then that salvation is going to be much more firm and much more secure than if it's just an individual matter. 
Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Surely Christ is our Passover lamb, was, had no blemish. There was no fault in him. Praise the Lord for that. Otherwise, he couldn't have been sacrificed. He would have had to be uh, die for his own sins. But, of course, he had no sin. New Testament, again, is very clear about that. He was unblemished as our Passover lamb. He says, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Again, a very significant detail. In Matthew 25, Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. He puts the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left hand. The sheep are blessed and they go into eternal life. The goats go into the eternal fire. So the lamb in the Bible signifies something very positive where the goats signify something very negative. And you have those both here in terms of the redemptive work of Christ. In terms of Himself, he was our wonderful, unblemished Passover lamb. There was never any fault in him. But he took our sins upon himself. All the sins of the whole world were laid upon him. And in that sense, he became a goat. He became one of the negative ones. He bore our sin. He was cursed on our behalf. So you see these two aspects of Christ and of his redemptive work. And just a simple statement like that here concerning the Passover. Verse 6, now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So the lamb was taken on the 10th day of the month, and it was slain on the 14th day of the month. So that means there were three or four days when this lamb was just there. Well, what were they doing with this Passover lamb? Well, one thing they had to do was to make sure it was unblemished, that there was no fault in this lamb. What happened when Christ came into Jerusalem? Of course, he was tested. He was there for a few days and he was being tested. He was being examined by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees, by the Herodians, by others to see if there was any blemish in him. In other words, he was fulfilling the picture here of how the Passover lamb got examined. Christ himself was examined to make sure there was no fault in him. There was nothing about him that anyone could make any accusation of. He was completely and perfectly without blemish. Again, this is just a picture of, the, of Christ as our Passover lamb. Praise the Lord for that. Then at the end of verse 6, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Saints, we were all involved in the death of Christ, every one of us, because it was our sin that put Christ on the cross. We need to have a deep sense of that. The whole congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. We need to have a deep sense. We ourselves in a very real sense, put Christ on the cross by our sin. We should have a very sober feeling about that before the Lord. Now, verse 7 here is quite significant. Listen to what this says. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. This is quite a crucial point concerning the redemptive work of Christ. And I want to spend a little time on this because the question is, where is the blood sprinkled? And I think many of us believers, and I probably myself had this concept for a long time, is that the blood gets sprinkled directly on me. No, the blood gets sprinkled on the doorposts. And it's crucial for us to understand this. As we said before, the entire Passover is Christ, according to the Apostle Paul. And so including the house here is a picture of Christ as our dwelling place. And that's where the blood gets sprinkled. The blood gets sprinkled on the doorposts. In other words, the function of the blood 
is to give us a way to enter into Christ as our dwelling place. In the New Testament, it does not say so much that we are covered by the blood. What it stresses over and over again is that we are in Christ. If we think the blood is supposed to be sprinkled directly upon us, that means we can have redemption apart from Christ. Yes, he shed, our blood, he shed his blood for our sins, and then the blood gets sprinkled on us, so now we have redemption apart from Christ. That's not the New Testament thought. The New Testament thought is the blood gives us a way to enter into Christ. He took our sins upon himself. Now the blood takes away those sins and gives us a way to enter into Christ as our dwelling place. And so over and over again, the New Testament tells us we are in Christ. We cannot have redemption apart from Christ. That's why the book of Ephesians begins when it's talking about redemption. Ephesians 1 verse 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of offenses according to the riches of his grace. Then Ephesians 1.11 says, In him also we were made God's allotted portion. Verse 13, In whom also, having heard the word of the truth, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. All these things, all through the book of Ephesians, all through the New Testament, it's a matter of our being in him, in Christ, because the blood has been sprinkled on the doorway. So we have the way to enter into Christ as our dwelling place. And now we're in Christ, and that's why we are redeemed. So this is a marvelous picture of the fact that we are redeemed in Christ and we are only redeemed in Christ. We do not have redemption apart from Christ. Very, very significant uh, and very important for us to understand that. I just want to take a minute to remind the listeners that this program is being produced in connection with my website, which is thechristianfaith.org. I hope you'll visit that. I think there's a number of very useful resources on there to help you with your spiritual growth, with your walk with the Lord, and with your serving of the Lord, and to have a view of what God's purpose is. If you want to subscribe to our e-letter, which we send out a couple times a week, just click on the subscribe link there. And if you'd like to contact us, if you have comments or questions about the program or about the Christian life in general, you can send us a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. Then verse 8, also very, very significant here. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted with fire, with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. I just love this. This is such a wonderful picture of our being in Christ. You know, objectively, Christ has done a work on our behalf. He died on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven, and our sins could be taken away, and we could enter into Christ. Praise the Lord for that. But once we're in Christ, what should we be doing? Now Christ becomes very subjective to us, very experiential to us, you could say. We really experience Christ as our Passover lamb by partaking of him, by eating of him as our Passover lamb. Objectively, the blood was shed so our sins could be forgiven. That's something outside of us. But subjectively, we're partaking of the lamb and now the lamb is getting inside of us to become subjective to us and real to us in our experience. Do you know what this is, saints? This may be the best picture in the whole Bible of what it means to abide in Christ. It's just a wonderful, wonderful picture of what the Lord talks about in John 15. 
He says in verse 4, Abide in me and I in you. So we are abiding in Christ as our dwelling place on the one hand. And on the other hand, he is now abiding in us because we partake of him as our Passover lamb. He also says, John six fifty seven, He who eats me, he also shall live because of me. Praise the Lord for that, saints. We're partaking of Christ as our Passover lamb, as we're dwelling in Christ as our abode. We're abiding in him, and now he's abiding us. Just a wonderful picture you have here in the Old Testament of the New Testament experience of what it means to abide in Christ. Praise the Lord for that. What a wonderful picture. And then it tells us a little bit about how we're supposed to eat of Christ. First of all, this lamb has to be roasted in the fire. And the fire here signifies being consumed by the judgment of God. Hebrews 12, verse 29, quoting the Old Testament, says, Our God is a consuming fire. We should have a real sense, saints, when we partake of Christ as our Passover lamb. He was consumed by the judgment of God for our sins. He was roasted in the fire, so to speak. That's how Christ died. He died paying the price for our sins by being consumed by the holy fire of God. We have need to have a deep sense of that to really partake of Christ in a healthy way. Then verse 8 goes on, with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs shall they eat it. The unleavened bread signifies the purity of Christ. Leaven in, in, the, in the Bible, of course, signifies corruption, evil things. But there was nothing corrupt, there was nothing evil in Christ. And as we partake of Christ, we just sense there's a purity in him. There's a, a, a holiness. You, can just, all just, you could never imagine how pure he really is. There's something in him that's completely apart from any kind of sin, any kind of corruption. We need to have a real sense of that. That's why they ate the Passover lamb with the unleavened bread. And the bitter herbs signify there should be a, a bitterness within us as we partake of Christ as our Passover lamb for our sins, for the corruption, a real repentance, a real sorrow for how how fallen we are, how far we are from God, just a real repentance and a real dealing with our sins before the Lord. These are the bitter herbs. Then we can partake of Christ in a healthy way. In verse 9, it tells us how not to eat Christ. Very, very significant here. Yes, there's a healthy way to eat Christ, and there's also an unhealthy way to partake of Christ. And many, many people today try to partake of Christ in an unhealthy way, but the Lord says, don't do that. Well, what is this unhealthy way? Verse 9 says, you don't eat it raw, nor boil at all with water, but roast it in the fire. What does it mean to take Christ raw? That means you take Christ as your example. And there's so many uh, people today, even some people who claim to be Christians, in a very real sense, they're trying to partake of Christ raw. He's, He's our good example. Uh, We need to be uh, kind and holy and loving uh, like he was and and learn by his example. But there's no judgment there. There's no recognition of the damage sin has done to humanity and how Christ had to pay the price for our sins. They don't seem to have any recognition of that. That's the partake of Christ raw without him going through that process. It never works. In the New Testament, Jesus says very much the same thing. In Matthew chapter 9, 16, He says, no one puts a piece of undressed cloth on an old garment, for it pulls away from the old garment and the tear is made worse. That's exactly what it means to uh, eat Christ raw. Christ, in, in the New Testament, what he's saying here is, he wants to give himself to us 
as our righteousness. But for that to happen, we have to take the whole cloth, the whole garment. You can't take a piece of Christ and try to put that on your old garment. That's the undressed cloth being put on the old garment. I realize I'm a sinner, but I I need some love. So I'm going to rip a piece of uh, love off of Christ and try to put it on my my garment. I'm going to humility. I'm going to rip that off. I'm going to put that on my garment. You can't do that. It's not going to work, he's saying here. It says it pulls away from the old garment and the tear is made worse. You're just going to find out even more. You're a worse sinner than you realized. You have to take the whole cloth. And that's the same thought that you see here in the book of Exodus. You can't partake of Christ raw. He has to be processed. He has to pass through God's judgment before you can really partake of him. Never try to take Christ as your example. Receive him as your savior. That's how you partake of Christ, as the one who has passed through God's judgment. Praise the Lord for that, for his mercy upon us. Then it says, don't eat it boiled at all with water. Well, this is a little different. It's not, uh, it is a suffering, but it's not the suffering that comes from being consumed by God's judgment. It's the suffering of a kind of martyrdom. It's suffering without God's judgment. Yes, he suffered. Some people would say he was a martyr. He was, uh, some people say he was a revolutionary. You know, maybe there are other reasons why people would say he was martyred. But he wasn't our savior. He wasn't really our savior. He suffered, but he wasn't our savior. That's to take Christ boiled with water. No, Christ was consumed by God's judgment. We really have to be very, very clear about that. To partake of Christ in the right way. As my Savior, the one who was died, crucified, suffered God's judgment and was raised again, then I can partake of Christ in a healthy way. Verse 9 and 10 go on to say, You eat it with its heads, its head, its legs, its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until the morning, and what remains of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. So we want to partake of the whole Christ. We don't want to pick and choose. I like this part of Christ. I don't like that part of Christ. We should take everything of Christ. Everything the New Testament presents to us, everything the whole Bible presents to us about Christ, we want to take that. That's to partake of Christ in a healthy way. Amen. So now we come to verse 11, where he tells us how to eat it again. The Lord tells Moses, Thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now what I said in the previous program, and in the programs I did before on the Passover, was you have to understand the the Passover in the context of the book of Exodus. The purpose of the Passover was to get the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And that's what we see here. That's why they were told to eat it, as though they were preparing for a journey. With a belt on their waist, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, they were ready to go to leave the land of Egypt. And that's what they did later that night. In the same way, when we receive the gospel, when we receive Christ as our Savior and believe in him, again, I would say we should have a strong sense, I have begun a journey with Christ. I'm now leaving Satan's world system to follow Christ into the good land, so to speak, the good land of his kingdom on the earth for the building up of his dwelling place. That's the New Testament view. People are being transferred from the authority of Satan to the authority of God. That's what redemption really accomplishes in the New Testament. And we need to have a very clear view of this. So let's spend some time to look at some of the verses that talk about this. In Acts twenty-six eighteen. Paul's telling how the Lord spoke to him. 
and commissioned him. He says the Lord told him he was sending him to the Gentiles to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light and from the authority of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among all those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So Paul's commission, his authority from the Lord, was to open people's eyes and to turn them from darkness to light so they would have a transfer from Satan's authority to God's authority. Then they receive the forgiveness of sins and the inheritance among God's people. His preaching of the gospel was for people to have a real transfer. It wasn't just for the forgiveness of sins. For sure it's included in that. But the people who received Paul's gospel had a real transfer from Satan's authority to God's authority. And that's what he talks about in Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, these wonderful verses. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you for a share of the portion allotted to the saints in the light, who delivered us from the authority of darkness and removed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Praise the Lord, saints. We've been removed into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Again, just what you see in the picture in Egypt. The, the, the children of Israel were in slavery under Pharaoh. Eventually, they were brought into the good land. That's what Paul's referring to here in these verses. In the first gospel message that Peter ever preached, ever preached in the, in the church age, I should say, Acts chapter 2, verse 40, it says, With many other words he solemnly testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this crooked generation. So it wasn't just to be saved from the judgment of eternal damnation. Peter wanted the people to be saved from this crooked and perverted generation. And in Galatians chapter 1, again, going back to the writings of the Apostle Paul, he says, Christ gave himself for our sins that he might draw us out of this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So in all these verses, we see the purpose of redemption is so that we can have a transfer from the authority of Satan to the authority of God. It includes the forgiveness of sins for sure, but it's for something else. It's for us to have this transfer. So we're not living in slavery. We're not living in vanity, wasting our life anymore, building up Pharaoh's treasure cities. Our life now has a real purpose, has a real destination. We are standing with God, journeying with Christ, so to speak, for the building up of his kingdom on the earth. Praise the Lord, saints. That's what redemption is all about. And that's what we see here in the picture of the Passover in the land of Egypt, just like it got them out of the land of Egypt. Redemption brings us out of Satan's authority and under God's authority. Then we have a clear understanding of what redemption is really all about. And the Lord goes on in verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Satan was surely destroyed on the cross by the redemptive work of Christ. All the gods of Egypt were cast down. That's just, just a wonderful fact. It needs to become real in our experience, but we also stand on the fact Satan and all his hosts and their authority has been destroyed. And that's why we can leave his kingdom behind now once we have the real experience of the redemption of Christ. And then verse 13, we have this wonderful promise from the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. In a number of the verses in this section, in this passage, the Lord says he is going to strike the firstborn. But in verse 23, he specifically says, 
The Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your house to strike you when he sees the blood on the doorposts. So on the one hand, this blood enabled the children of Israel to enter into the house, and on the other hand, it kept the destroyer out of the house. So it had these two functions. And in the same way, the blood today enables us to get into Christ, and it also keeps Satan and his accusations from following us into the house. It keeps us safe from the destroyer, the destroying angel, so to speak. Praise the Lord, saints, for the blood of the Lamb. That's all we can say. And to skip ahead to verse 23, I'll just read that. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your house to strike you. What was the Lord looking for here? He was trying to see how the people were behaving in the house. He was looking around, checking inside the house. No, he was looking for one thing, whether or not that blood was on the lintels and on the doorposts. That was all that mattered. If he saw the blood, he passed over. If he did not see the blood, he did not pass over. In the same way today, Christ, in terms of our redemption, the only thing God looks for is the blood. He's not trying to see how we're behaving. He's not trying to see what we're doing inside the house, so to speak. He only wants to see that blood. Once he sees the blood, he passes over. Saints, our sins are forgiven when we believe in Christ forever. They are fully taken away. Praise the Lord for the marvelous efficacy of the redeeming blood of Christ. And what we see here in the Passover, it causes God's judgment to pass over us all by itself. Nothing else is required. We simply strike the blood. And again, I would say, if you're not a person who has had that experience of believing in Christ, of striking the blood of the Lamb on the house so you can be forgiven, I would encourage you, open your heart now and say, Lord, I disclaim the blood of Jesus for my forgiveness. I'm a sinner. I repent. I strike the blood of the Lamb. I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior. Now your judgment has to pass over me because you see the blood on the door of the house. Now I'm one who's in Christ. Praise the Lord for that. Now I want to go back a couple of verses to Exodus chapter 12, verse 21. Because there's a very sweet point about how we believe in Jesus here in these two verses. And I want to say this especially because I'm encouraging people to believe in Christ. And some people may say, well, I, I just don't have that much faith to believe in Christ. So listen to what we, we find in these verses. Exodus chapter 12, 21. This is Moses speaking to the children of Israel. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover. Then verse 22, how is the blood applied? This is what we find in verse 22. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and the strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. Well, why do you apply the blood with the hyssop? What's the significance of the hyssop? Whenever the Bible says something like this, it's very meaningful. And you have to interpret it in the context of the Bible. And for that, you have to go all the way to 1 Kings chapter 4, where it's talking about King Solomon and his Proverbs. And it says, King Solomon spoke 3,000 Proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. In verse 33, And he spoke of trees from the cedar of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. Here you see what the meaning of hyssop is in the Bible. The cedars of Lebanon are the greatest trees in the Bible. 
The hyssop is just about the smallest little plant that's in the Bible, at least in the Old Testament. Saints, do you know what our faith is? Our faith is just about the smallest thing in the whole Bible, just like the hyssop. It's really so. We have so little faith. But the sweet thing about this is what Moses is saying here, and the Lord through Moses is saying, you don't need a lot of faith to apply the blood. The smallest amount of faith there is, even so small as a little bunch of hyssop, if you use that to apply the blood of Christ, God is going to pass over your sins. We don't need to have a cedar branch to apply the blood of Christ. No, just a little bit of hyssop. And it says it's something so common. It says it springs from the wall. You know, this is not like, you know, we talk about the faith of Peter or whatever. Actually, Peter says we have the same faith as he did. But we don't need to have some kind of great outstanding faith. Just a little bit of the very most common faith. Just use that. I would encourage you right now, use that little bit of faith. Just tell God, Lord, all I have is a little bit of faith, but I use that to apply the blood of Christ. I assure you, your sins will be forgiven. Praise the Lord for that, saints. It just takes a little bit of faith to apply the blood of Christ. That's the meaning of the hyssop here in Exodus chapter 12, verse 22. Well, there's still more to say about the Passover. Again, this is just a marvelous, marvelous picture of the redemptive work of Christ. And you can see how rich it is. I mean, we're just quickly going through a bunch of these points, but there's so much here. But I think that is enough for this program. And so we will, as the Lord allows, cover the remaining points regarding the Passover and probably also concerning the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the next program. But I encourage you, spend some time in this chapter, just reading this chapter and really prayerfully considering these points because they do just give us such a marvelous insight into everything that Christ accomplished in the cross and how that becomes real to us in our experience. And it's so crucial for us as the believers in Christ to have a solid grounding in understanding the redemptive work of Christ if we're to go on with him in a healthy way. And as the Lord allows, we hope to be back with you again soon to continue considering this matter of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Christian Faith Radio Hour. For more resources, you can visit thechristianfaith.org, which is my website. If you'd like to receive my e-letter, just click on the subscribe link there and enter your email address. And to connect with us by email, just send us a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. Until next time, may the Lord keep you in his way for his sake and his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.